running a small business can be tough. I mean, you're not just the CEO, you're also the marketing, the finance manager, and everything else in between. Technology, however, and digital tools can play a big part in taking on some of these tasks, giving you that much-needed headspace to focus on running your business. But it's hard to know where to start, which tools are right for you, how do you go about integrating them, and when is the right time to make the investment. MasterCard's Strive UK programme has been set up to make it easy for small business owners to access the support needed to digitise, whether that's incorporating accountancy tools or new digital payment methods. Through free guidance, helpful tools and personalised one-to-one mentoring, Strive is empowering small business owners across the UK to succeed. For more on how Strive UK could help your business, visit mastercard.co.uk slash drive. Okay, here's the show. My search for identity has felt, well, complex at times. I lost my parents when I was a teenager. I was a working class woman who moved into the boardroom with many public school educated men. And after a lifetime of relationships with men, I fell in love with a woman. I was a straight mother of two who then became a gay parent. There are, of course, those who throw on identity like a comfortable old sweater, but then there are others who must locate and reveal their true self by a sometimes painful and thorny process of elimination and discovery. I am one of them. After learning to tough it out in childhood, I quickly and successfully adopted the alpha codes of the world and workplace, And it took time for me to peel them away and discover my true core. It's been challenging at times, self-preoccupied at others, but it's got me to where I am today. And boy, I am thankful for it. Other misfits like me share this search for identity. It's one of the key characteristics of these irreverent, questioning, complicated souls who fall outside the sharply defined and rigid lines societal norms. I often ask myself whether our identity is something kerneled inside us at a young age as our early childhood experiences and DNA intertwine, or is it a shifting, porous process of constant evolution, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not? I believe it's the latter. We are all a palimpsest in which experience, epoch and the thousand tiny accidents of fate combine. Some, however, don't have the courage or curiosity to venture through all the complex layers of self. The beautiful misfits have to. They know there is something more. They search to find it. I'm Mary Portas and this is The Beautiful Misfits. I loved that, Mary. It sort of paints the landscape that we're going to walk into and it paints it really beautifully, actually, and it sets the scene. Yeah. When we invited you on the podcast and we explained the idea, which part of, I suppose, which part of yourself did did the misfit resonate with the loudest? I mean, I, I know your life trajectory is incredible and we'll get on to that. No, you don't, we don't have to, but the misfit thing did. Uh, the misfit and Portas, um, <laughs> you see people out there in the world and they, you hear a couple of things about them and you think, oh, they're one of us, whatever that is. I have no idea what it is, but it, I know it. And in fact, I define my friends by, I was out with a friend yesterday, who was out, I'm like, he's one of us, he's, you know, yeah, well, I don't know what they are. They are the misfits, undoubtedly. Mm. Actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the introduction to you so that then you will okay. see how I yeah. feel yeah. about you and where I feel it was important to get you onto the podcast. Like me, my guest today has had a sometimes thorny path to understanding who he truly is. Lem Sisse is a poet, writer, performer, activist and former Chancellor of the University of Manchester, but his immense success was born out of a complex and painful childhood. Lem was born in 1967 to a young Ethiopian woman called Yemashet, who was pregnant when she arrived to study in England. Unmarried, she agreed to put Lem into temporary care after needing to return to Ethiopia to care for her ill father. 
She planned to reunite with her son, but Lem had been swallowed up by the system. Fostered by a white family, Lem was renamed Norman, and he grew up a young black boy in very white Lancashire. When he was 12, his foster parents, who by then had three biological children of their own, sent him back into the care system. He lived in various children's homes until ageing out of the care system, and only then was he finally given his birth certificate, revealing the name of his mother and his own legal name, Lem Sisse. Lem has gone on to achieve huge success. Announcing him as the winner of the prestigious Penn Pinter Prize in 2019, a member of the judging panel said, In his every work, Lem Sisse returns to the underworld he inhabited as an unclaimed child. From his sorrows, he forges beautiful words and a thousand reasons to live and love. Lem Sisse, welcome to Beautiful Misfits. (laughs) I love that. I don't think I can compare with that trauma. I don't even think I want to even do so. But we were both young people who had nothing. I mean, um, my mother died, but then my father remarried a year later, and then he died nine months later, and then he left our family home to the new wife. So we all had to leave, and we were homeless by the time I was 20. Well, just to say this, Mm. that I've learned that loss is 100% loss Mm. to that child that Mm. you were... It's 100% lost to me. They're incomparable, not because they're incomparable, but because it's 100% to me and it was 100% to you. Yes. This idea of like how big is my pain is bigger than your pain. As I grow older, I think, no, actually, I didn't have anything to compare it to. You, and neither exactly did you. Right. It was it's just only... pain. It was yeah. just pain. Yeah. <laughs> it was just yeah. pain and an emptiness. Yeah. What was interesting for me, you wrote your first book of poetry at 21 and you've been a full-time writer, is that right? Since yes, 20, yes, it was 20, 23, 24, so, yeah. First double page in The Guardian was at 21. Incredible, you know, right? Some people fall into that, I've got to survive, I've got to make money, I've got to get out in the world and, and create safety. Yeah, and, I'm, and, I'm hearing you. But I can't imagine at 21 going, oh, I'm going to write a book of poetry. But here's the thing. When I thought back to my age then, because everybody thinks, because I had a quick and fast career, that I was very visionary and I was going to... I wasn't at that 21. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, I have nothing. I didn't even think I had nothing. I don't even think that that's not true. I just remember accepting that the way my life was, which was effectively having nothing, was the way my life was going to be. So... I didn't go chasing work and safety. I just took anything to get by, which Mm. happened to then take me on the journey to success. Thank you. So is that... That's exactly how it was. I I went to Manchester because 99% of people in my village I thought were bad. They weren't, by the way. I just, you know know what I mean, that my youthful brain was like, I need to get away from this. And 1% were good, I thought. And then I, I thought, if I go to Manchester... This is mathematically wrong, but 198% may be bad, but there'll be 2%. Where was you know, this that, head that, that was I went on to Manchester on that logic, and I never looked back. I went to Manchester. Within a year or so, <laughs> I got a job as a literature development worker. Still, that's a good time. It's an incredible job. It was Look, it was one of those entry-level arts council jobs, but I didn't have a qualification to my name, you know. I did publish a book when I was 18, which I paid for out of my... The only time I was on the dole, which was six months, and I paid for this pamphlet, and I sold it to the miners of Wigan, and I took that to Manchester, the striking mine. I took that to Manchester with me to the city centre. I performed in Moss Side in front of more black people than I'd ever seen in my entire life, and I was scared... Shitless. Well, hang on. So, what did you write in the pamphlet? You, what, you said you sold it to the mine. Okay, it was a a four pages stapled in the middle, folded over into an A five poetry. poetry book of pamphlet called "Terribly Titled Perceptions of the Pen." I am embarrassed to say, and I sold it for two pound fifty. Um, to I miners, said, I've got, I've got did you copies say? to striking miners to their families because that's where I grew. I, grew yeah, my my housing estate. A striking miner saying, "I'll buy that bit my, of poetry for two pound fifty. I know it's this is hilarious. what misfits is about. We shouldn't. <laughs> been there Mary we shouldn't what was we doing in those who what, who's he you know for the first you know I don't know how long in 
my life. My nickname was Chalky White, you know, oh, and here man. I was, yes. But here I was writing this Wasn't book. Wasn't that a comedian that used to say that? There was a comedian, yeah, and called I, I Chalky know who White. It was. And, but there was the black guy as well from Yorkshire, the black comedian. Who called himself Who called that. himself Chalky White. But the point is, is that it's a complex thing because everybody in the town wanted to find a way to connect with me with their own complicated relationships with themselves and the change in society. Margaret Thatcher, at the time, to the north of England, had to break it, you know, and, and actually the north particularly, and particularly where I was from in Lancashire, where the mines were and the pits were and the unions were, you know. So I was this kid who looked like the future to a lot of people, this other colour, but who was actually part of the community. I mean, I'd literally grown up there all my life. So there was this duality of love and hate from me to them and from them to me as I grew into a young man. To cut a long story short, I sold my book of poetry, which was printed by a socialist printer on Atherton on Market Street. I sold it to the striking miners and mill workers on the housing estate that I grew up on, that my children's home was based on, two children's homes were on. And they bought it, you see? So the same people who call me Chalky White would want to read poems about anti-racism that I was writing when I was a young, angry poet. So it's a lot more complex. So you, you were saying you were writing poetry about being a young black man in a white working-class community that was being demolished by Thatcher's oh my gosh, government. Yeah. So you met on that, you met on this pain and this anger, I would imagine. Yes, yes, and there are poems that support the miners in that book and there are poems about racism. And, you know, miners were aware of racism and of South Africa and of, you know, uh, the miners in South Africa. There was a lot of unity between the left-wing miners of South Africa and the left-wing of, mm. of Lancashire and Manchester. You know, and to be honest, if anybody was outwardly racist to me, those people who were around me in Atherton and Lee would be supporting me. You know would I mean? they be calling you, because here's the interesting thing, because I think, you know, you're a bit younger than me, but we grew up much at the same time. Yeah, would yeah. they be calling you chalky white as a friendly term? Yes, they yeah, would. They yeah, yeah, they would. But, but they wouldn't see themselves as racist at no, all? No, they wouldn't. But my problem was, was that, see, it is complex, because the misfit will always fit in yeah. the gay women in Shuggy Bane. I don't know if you've read Shuggy Bane, the book. I was the judge of the Booker Prize when we elected that as the winning book. And the gay women in Beloved, actually, in Toni Morrison's books, you could pass. And men, actually, you know, we had a gay minor Mm, in in mm. Atherton. You could pass if you were a misfit. Being gay or being black or being a minority doesn't make you a misfit, by the way. It's not intrinsically. But you could pass as long as you didn't pull anybody up about it. So this is the way it was for me. In other words, as soon as I said to my friends, and this is when I had a kind of nervous breakdown as a teenager, as soon as I said, hey, I've heard the joke and I need to be called my name, the reaction I got from the people that I loved then scared me because it was, who the bloody hell do you think you are? You're chalky white, pal. Who do you think you are to tell me not to call? Are you saying I'm, you know? And what I saw frightened me to the core because then I realised something's wrong. Something's wrong with all of this, with this town, with how I'm viewed, with how we're viewing each other. There's something wrong. As soon as I scratch the surface, there's this darkness, this festering anger, which is unresolved, this animal comes out with this one arm and swipes at me and it wants me to swipe back. Yeah. And it's like, you're, you're one of them, aren't you? Mm. As long as you say you're not chalky white and you're not this and you're not, you're one of them. Yeah. You're one of them and we don't like them. We don't like them. And it's the horror of the misfit being outed is it wakens the fear of the unknown. Who are you? You know, and the moment you've woken that up, the whole landscape changed. And I had a nervous breakdown because the people I loved... How old were you then? I was about 15 and I couldn't walk out on the street. At 15, I couldn't go to the shop. I'd have to go down back streets or wait for it to be dark. And I was smoking weed at the time as well. And that added to the... It's too easy a term to say paranoia because the truth was curtains were twitching People were spitting at me from the buzz, you know. People were driving faster when I crossed the road to pretend to hit me. Those things really were happening. 
But when I saw them, I couldn't not see them. Yeah, every, everything changed. So was it a move from the sort of, you know, I can imagine you, I'm presuming here, but you being a quite a lively, jolly, oh, you know... Yeah, I can that say, was me when I was a kid. Energy to this, yeah. being this black, cute kid who's yeah, out there, they're calling absolutely. Chalky White, absolutely. you're one of us, yeah. you know. Boom, I loved boom, it. Boom, they yeah, love yeah, it, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And then you went, actually, do you know what, I don't want to be this anymore. Because I was becoming a man, because I was frightened, like, I was like, wait a minute, I'm going to leave school. I remember thinking... I can't be a man and be going to the pub and be a up chalky yeah. or going to work and being... I was like, I can't. I remember having this internal conversation with myself because I was in the children's homes. I had no family, so I had to be my own counsel, yeah. you know. And I think that's the other thing about misfits. I think they counsel themselves, not necessarily healthily, but they do. And so I was but like, they do counsel themselves. They do themselves. counsel themselves, don't uh, uh, they? Yes, yeah. but that is the thing that where the growth comes from and the understanding that this is... A different shape. I am a different shape. <laughs> and the puzzle that's been made over there, I don't fit into. I don't. And in fact, the funny thing is, is that, you know, when I came to Manchester and to Moss Side and amongst, mm. you know, the black community, I was like, I don't think I fit there either. And then realize I'm, I'm Ethiopian. You know, my parents are Ethiopian. It's a very particular community. So I come to London and the Ethiopian community, I don't really fit. Then I go to Ethiopia and I become well known in Ethiopia. You know, the prime minister wants to meet me and, and I meet him and it's all kinds of crazy stuff happens that's beautiful given my past. But I'm like, oh, I'm not. But do we ever fit anyway? So no, I'm not sure absolutely. I do. No, no. Is there anywhere that you go, that's totally me? There's parts of my life where I feel completely in flow and warmth. Yeah, this, this in here thing. now, it's beautiful. Yes. You know, it's just beautiful, yes. right? And yes. you feel yeah, that. Yeah, but yeah. I don't think we'd fit to any particular place or tribe. Or, I just think that's the thing. No, and I think what I like about us, about the misfits, is this other thing. We're calling it misfit, and that's fine. We're giving it a term but we're not afraid of it. This is really no. key because a lot of society, you have to remember, is afraid of being the misfit in the room. Yes. We're actually really okay with that. Takes a while, though. My, mine took a while, yours took a yeah, while. Yeah. Now yeah, we're yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. And what, yeah. What, what we were talking about earlier when we talked about the system is actually we want to say, the, the big upside of this for me is it's okay, this is the world, we need you because you are the beautiful misfits. That, to me, is absolutely where I want to take this. And I don't even know where it's taken me. So what if I was to say to you, that, and I do believe this, it's so obvious to me when I see it. So I've always thought of myself as an outsider. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Outside of what? I don't know. But mm -hmm. it's, a, it's possibly a privilege in being able to see yourself as an outsider. But I do believe that all people think of themselves as outsiders or most people think of themselves as unique, as there's only one of them. Maybe I've been self-employed for too long because to, it's all my adult life. But So I therefore believe that ultimately if everybody is unique, then everybody is a misfit. The question is, do they give themselves permission or are they given permission to explore and enjoy that. That's the thing. That Then that's society, and this is what we're talking about, and that's the role that we have to do. That's why I'm talking to so many people. Who can influence the change on this? Because lots of people feel they can't be who they truly are yeah. because of society and all that we've been fighting against in our many years. What I found so interesting, though, with yours is what's so unusual about your story is that most of us have a sense of identity, you know, when we're born through biological family stories, collective history. But you absolutely had none of that. But even worse than that, your name, your identity, your genetic heritage was deliberately withheld from you. And I suppose has that journey of understanding who you are, which you were talking about, and forming a solid identity felt like a lifelong process? And is it still ongoing? It is still ongoing. For me, I'm a lifelong project. And I have to constantly stop myself from, I don't like the word, but from being triggered. Yes. And I don't like the word because the truth is, is that family is all around me and people do have families. Mm -hmm. And I'm really at a stage in my life where I can honestly say it is what it is. Yeah. I can give you all the kind of like, you know, the showstoppers, you know, I've only had probably five birthday parties with a member of family. Like my last birthday, I had no 
card from any family member, and I've never had that. Mm. So I can give you all that, you know, it can sound mm. like, you can be like, oh, my God, Liam, that's terrible. But actually, I have nothing to compare it with. It's the way it's always been. I'm OK with it. I've had the joy of good therapy, and I've been able to afford it since I was 30. Yeah, and there's lots of things. It you just know, is. Even when I get my passport, you know, my new passport, it's like the person who goes on the end of the passport, of which I've had 10 over the years, is my present girlfriend. It's not a family member, because there is no family member. You know, so what I've been through has allowed me to empathise and understand and connect with people, but I can't live by connecting with people's pain. That can't be the defining factor of whether I can communicate with you. No. Do you, do you know I, what I mean? Because like, that's no, a dangerous yeah, yeah, trap. Yeah, of course it is, of you course. Because it means you have to be hurt for me to... Yeah, it's like yeah, Superman yeah, yeah. or Superwoman yeah. has to fix things for yeah. their identity to be clear. Yeah. But interesting, I, I wonder why you, you've not got family, you've not married, and you've even yeah. said they're my present girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, well... Uh, Do you see relationships as transitory and, and that they're not for ever and you don't want to maybe put those... Possibly. I mean, I, I'm now 55, I have no children and um, I haven't fostered or adopted. And, and you've never felt the urge? i felt the urge in various times, yeah, I have felt the urge. All I can say is... It is what it is. I mean, I think now if I have a child, I won't have grandchildren, for example, because I'm 55 now, so... Yeah, but that is one thing you guys do have on your side. You well, still yeah. pop out. Yes, I agree. That is an option for me. But I'm, I'm going to say this anyway. In, in having no family and having watched my friends get married, then get divorced, have children, the children are now going through university, children are now past university, children will get married soon. Those are the same friends who said that they were super independent as kids and they would never have, you know, this, that and the other, who've reverted to a pattern which I knew was already laid out there for them. And you will have seen this in your friends who say mm. when you're 20s and they were like, our oh, parents are a pain in the ass, blah, blah, blah. And then they get married and their parents come to the wedding and then you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you see this journey happen. And I just haven't done it. And so it must be connected in some way. I was always frightened of getting married because I wouldn't have the uh, family at the wedding. There'd be nobody on my side of the church, you know. Really? You would yes. I did a piece for The Times when I was 25 where I wrote a whole story about it, about... The images stuck in my mind that, that she would have her family on one side of the church and on my side was this tidal wave of blood, like a bloodline sort of just going over all of the pews, you know. So I have a very strong relationship with the idea that whenever I've won anything, there's not been any family there. It's been a reminder, you know, like every birthday, every Christmas, every time I've got an award of some sort, I look out at the audience and there's no family member. Does, Nobody does who knew that me hurt, when I was a child. Does How it could it not? This is the, the thing that people don't realise. It's not what happened to you in your childhood that matters. It's how it affects your adulthood. That's why when we're parents, we try to teach our children patterns so that those patterns will be replicated and referenced as they become adults. So as an adult, every time I've won an award, whether it's becoming Chancellor at the university, I've looked out in the audience and thought there's nobody there who's knew me as a child. There is no family member there. So it's no surprise to me that I haven't had children, even though people have said to me, you need to do this, Len, because you've got so much love to give. And even though I kind of get it now, like I get about pets, I get it. There is something super powerful about the gift of giving to a, a child or to um, your blood, you know. Do you go into any sort of Buddhism? Have you followed That's anything good. or, you know, but being this is where I am and an acceptance? Yeah. Well, have you done any sort of sort of spiritual? I know you've done therapy. Do you? I don't drink. Oh, great, great. And Which is, okay. I do believe that there is okay. a higher power. There is. I'm fully aware that there is a higher power. There is a God bigger than me. I don't know what it is, but uh, I know it's in meditation. I know it's in all of the religions, I believe. And so meditation's important and also accountability, making amends, etc. And that's a kind of lifelong project. And I practice what I think is the kind of radical vulnerability. 
It's your yeah. truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it means you have to face up to your stuff and mm. uh, as best as you can. Yeah. Uh, I believe in people who believe as well, whether you're Muslim or Christian or, you know, Buddhist or whatever. Um, there's a lot of us about. Do you know, I've often talked about this and I started sort of on the journey... You know, and I think yours might have been through, you know, addiction, like, mm -hmm. and mine was through pain and all the mm. stuff. And I started on this sort of journey of, of reading, the, I call them the teachers, spirituality, or whatever, whether it's God, whether it's power, whether it's our soul, whatever. And I don't know whether that slips into the misfit bit as well, but you also feel that you know when you meet someone who gets that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, likewise, it's not be had a place at all. It's even a slight, I'm feeling it with you and me here, that there's a slight embarrassment to name it as spirituality <laughs> or soul or God. Well, because we might be seen, certainly within business, it was not seen as something that you'd even mention in a business world, or let alone the bloody boardroom. You know, yeah. well, are you following your truth? You know, because actually that is what the world comes down to. But yet there is still this... I mean, when I was writing my book, Work Like a Woman, and I started talking, you know, and I was like, advice, don't, you know, if you put the word spirituality in there or God or love or this is what this is based on. Did you feel a little bit embarrassed when you talked about it then? Look at your oh, body. It's, Look it's, at your so, body. Yeah, my body's all closed mm -hmm. up, isn't it? Well, I, it's funny because I am thinking of, for example, with the social services... The word love was not spoken about some years ago, OK? In fact, I would say 15 years ago, people in the social service didn't mention the word love. It wasn't about love. It was about care for the children. Well, why is care for the children not about love? Now, people in the heads of social services, of children's services around the country, speak of love and how they can show love through their actions in the care system. Isn't that so beautiful, it's, yeah, though? It's, it's a new thing. Just talking about care, because the word care, when someone cares for you, is very beautiful. Yeah, somehow, when you talk about the care system, that word doesn't mean the same or feel the same, even when you talked about it. You lived in a variety of care situations. Were you constantly on high alert? What was that like? Just, just talk to me how that was. Your mother went, she was studying here, wasn't she? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. My mum was studying here. Yeah. Then she was found herself pregnant. Then she was yeah. put into a mother and baby home. Yeah. So... That's when she... How old was she? Can she you... was 21. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, there you good, go. Good point. She was 20, 21, yeah. But then when she went into the mother and baby home, she was in a system that was here in England whose job was to get women who were pregnant with a baby and no husband to have their child adopted. So there were mother and baby homes all over yeah. England. A lot of Irish women yeah. came over from yeah. Ireland. They were put into these mother and baby homes. Actually, we use Irish women as an example. It was mainly English women that went in there. Yeah in the mother and baby homes. They were run by the nuns. Then the social services would come, get the women to sign the adoption papers. Then the child was adopted. So it was a system that worked, as long as nobody questioned it. My mum said to the social worker, I'm not signing the adoption papers. I want him fostered, and then I'll take him with me. The social worker gave me to foster parents and said, treat this as an adoption. We'll get her to sign the adoption papers. Don't worry about it. He's yours forever. His name is Norman. Did they say the name or did the... No, the social worker. The social so worker said... they just came up with this name, a social, social worker. Social worker came up with the name and said his name's Norman. And did your mother then... Had your mother put you down as Lem Sisse? My name was Lem Sisse on my birth certificate. My right. name was only Lem, OK? It was only ever Lem. Why there was did, nothing why Lem. Why could they not just... He's, he gives me to foster parents and he says, treat this as an adoption. His name is Norman. And he says to my mother, I've got foster parents for you, don't worry about it. I'm with the foster parents. They say they're with me forever, that my mother doesn't want me, that she doesn't care, you know, she's left me alone. They've saved me from a poor Africa, etc. And they're my mum and dad. They teach me to call them mum and dad. I'm, you know, I'm months old when I'm with them. And then they... Did you love them? Are you kidding me? They were my mum and dad. I didn't know anybody else. Yeah, no, no, I, no, like, I totally... I, but I was the oldest kid of the family, and my mum was Catherine Greenwood, my dad was David Greenwood, my granddad was Duncan Munro. They told me that they were my parents forever, that my mother didn't want me. I had no other reality other than them. If you said to me, they're not your real parents, I'd be like, you crazy, they are my parents. Ask them. Of course. Ask them. So I went to their church... I, it's funny talking about it in retrospect because it sounds as if, oh, I was plugged onto them. But I, w I was with them, remember, from birth, OK? Yeah. They were my mum and dad. And then at 12 years of age, 
Weirdly, they put me into children's homes, said it was my fault, and said they'd never visit me again, and never did. So all I thought was, it must be my fault, even though I don't know what it is. Sorry, that's just yeah. so huge. Can you just go back yeah, on that? So there you are, you love them. They love me, by the they way. They love you, they love you. It sounds like it. And then, but they then had their own children, didn't they? Biological children. Exactly. And the third one was an accident. Her name was Helen, and they called her an accident. My mother had... All in retrospect, but I know this now very clearly. My mother had uh, depression so badly, uh, and she had postnatal depression so badly. Oh, I see. None of this was told to me. What I was told was that the devil was inside of me. Who and, told you uh, that? My really? foster mother and my not my foster father, but my foster mother. Yeah. So who had the, the depression? The thing so is, she was the doing thing is the devil was working inside of me. That was the thing. They were very deeply religious. They were Baptists from the north of England, from villages. Village Baptists, you've got to think the Amish, you know, it was that kind of... I see a bit of Jeanette Winters' mother. Oh, the way that the, she I know Jeanette. Yeah, you know. is it? Yeah, Am yeah, I yeah, right? Of course, that that's of, exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. It, no, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. But um, they put me into care at 12, said they would never contact me, visit me, and never did. And I lost... I mean, remember, it wasn't just my mum and dad, it was my aunties and my uncles and my cousins and my granddad and my grandmas and my village and my first girlfriend and my town and my school and my church and everybody inside the church. And um, I was then held in four different children's homes and the last one was a virtual prison and assessment centre. And you've got to be asking yourself, what did you do wrong? That's exactly what I was asking myself. Nobody admitted that something wrong had happened. And then I was released from the children's homes at 17 and a half, from the last one, which was a virtual prison, and I was given my birth certificate that had my name on it, Lems to say. And the social worker, a good man, who's a friend of mine now, he was with me for a short time, for the last five years. He said, somebody did love you, Lem. And he gave letters of my mum pleading for me back to the social worker who'd given me to the foster parents, who she'd given me to, to have me fostered for a short period of time. And his name was Norman. So he'd named me after himself. They call me Mark after Mark in the Bible. Mm. So my name was Norman Mark Greenwood. And you can barely see it on my hand there now, but I tattooed NG onto my hand. I haven't actually I got my glasses on now. Can you see it? So the NG on my hand. That was chalky, but I'd scratched that out, that bit there. And that was a, a cross. We'd done with a pin at 13, 14 years of age in the first children's home. That's self-arm. That's the story of the name, and that's the story of what happened to me. Now, the important thing to say here, talking about misfits, is those mother and baby homes were set up to stop women who were pregnant with a baby from having that child because they were, by virtue of being pregnant, a threat to church and state. And we, in the public, in the terraced houses of Wigan, were as guilty as the nuns because we turned a blind eye. We were the ones who sent the daughters, remember, to the mother and baby homes and then turned a blind eye to the mother and baby homes that were in our streets. So we have to take... It's really easy for us to patronise the past, you know, and go, oh, my God, it was so terrible then, wasn't it? The way we talk about women who are poor or women who are addicts now, today, is the same as how we spoke about women who were pregnant without a husband then. But but I think also, listening to what you're saying and thinking back to, to my childhood and where power lay, power lay in the church. I mean, I grew up in a convent, went to convent school, and, you know, my parents, you didn't question the doctor, you didn't question the headmaster, you didn't question from a working-class background, you didn't question the church, basically. You know, we had a front room that was... There was five kids, and we all squeezed into the back one, but the front room was kept special for when the priest came around. I was like, what the actual... You know, this was just crazy stuff. So I would imagine that they believed that that's where power and a better understanding of what society should be like was within the, the walls of those places, don't you? Those institutions that were governed by the church. The yes. church. And... Come in, Jimmy Savile. Yeah, yeah. Come in, yeah, come, come in, in, come in, come in. Yeah. You know, you're a friend yeah. of the church. Power, again, that's power. Absolutely, power. Absolutely. 
that's one of the beautiful things that come. I I was having a discussion the other night, and some and I was saying to we must remember the world has got kinder and better. And it was like, oh, geez, it has. So it has. It yeah. has because we can stand up and start questioning that. We can. We didn't then because the power structures were even deeper. We were frightened, actually. I think. Well, we what did we know? We didn't know. They were the. You know, they, they were. They were the bosses. Yeah, they were the know. bosses. I think that's where I have hope and I often talk to people because we become passive and angry and not do anything with it, but actually let's turn that into something beautiful yeah. because it is getting better. Yeah, I agree. Hope's such a strong muscle. Anyway, did you find your mother? I found my mum when I was 21. It took her nine years to tell me my father's name. Talk me through that. Tell me about it. Yeah, well, first thing I did was I found from that letter that I was given when I left the children's homes at 17 and a half that showed me that in my mother's handwriting, pleading for me back to a social worker. From that, I saw an address. I wrote to that address in Ethiopia, but my mother had left because between the time she'd wrote that letter and the time that I found that letter, which was, uh, she wrote it in 1968, I got it in 1985, there'd and been the a revolution said what? the letter said what I want he said how back. can I get Lem back I, I want him I to be she book. says yeah. I want him to be with his own people in his own country I don't want him to face discrimination can you give me the address of his foster parents so I can write to them etc etc and she'd got her degree by then yeah she? yeah yeah she got her degree and she'd gone back to Ethiopia um, and they just said no he wrote back to her to say he wouldn't give her the address and that Lem was doing fine you have to note it's all in the writing, all in the detail. He called me Lem when he was writing to my mum. Yeah. Yet he'd called me Norman to the foster parents yeah. and in the files. So there's the first documented explicit lie. He'd lied to my mum about the name that he'd given her. Have you forgiven him? It's a good question. He's dead now, but I've kind of forgiven my foster parents. I, I kind of have forgiven him because I do believe, weirdly, that... One of the things that comes with this new way of looking at life, business, the arts, change, uh, activism, is compassion for the people that were yeah. against us. It's the strangest thing, and I no. think this is radical compassion. And I have seen her and forgiven her, my foster mum, because, mm. you know, the more successful I've become, unfortunately, you know, I've become a sort of, enemy sort of it's as if it's as if you oh when you do well they can then look at you and go look at you using our story your story of victimhood to be successful and i actually don't believe that it is my victimhood that has actually been my success it's the creativity the constant the fact that poetry and literature and performance uh, lends itself to the sadness of the story i keep saying this about creativity it's not the it's not ruled by your story. It's the other way around. Creativity has been able to interpret your story, but it's not the hound dog of your story. I'm with you. Where's oh. your identity now? Well... Because you're a Lancashire lad. Oh, I'm not, well, I'm, I'm all things. African. Yeah, I'm... Specifically I, Ethiopian. So what yeah. was your father? Where did he come from? Well, that's a really good question. Oh. Ethiopia. He was born in Ethiopia. Yeah, I mean, my father was a pilot for Ethiopian Airlines. He flew the Emperor Haile Selassie. He died in 1974. There's a photograph of him. You can find it online now, but, but when I was given it, when I was searching for him, and he stood there, you can see on his ring, on his finger, the exact same ring that Bob Marley's got on his finger. When I found my father in 1995, I'd already quoted Bob Marley in my second book of poetry published by Blood Axe Books. You know, so there are lots of magical things. What's what interests me as well, that I read that you left school with one O level. Is it right? Am I right? I did, yeah. 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 And I'm Chancellor of the University. Yeah, of, I it's mean, insane. I was the Chancellor it's of the brilliant, University. Right? So, uh, I've got five doctorates, you know. Yeah. And you have this just extraordinary, just empathetic intellect and I don't know if that even makes sense like but that. it is it's kind of a two way thing so it comes into me and it goes back into you and it, and I think there's a beauty that hangs between so thank you for much but uh, I suppose and I, and I don't want to get too deep into the education system but just how do we shake that system that just passing exams is not representative of talent ability and so forth that's one question mm -hmm. and, but I want to get mm. on to who taught you to be 
uh, to be a poet in a weird way, and I might be wrong on this, it feels like an even higher form of prose, you know. Uh, to, uh, no, it is. Uh, it's, it's like jazz, up, jazz to it's like music. It's jazz you know, to it a is, bit of pop. You know, yeah, I mean, it actually is. It's the highest form of literature. Look, I know great writers, so I know writers who write poetry and I can see that they are the example of what a poet is and the poetry has served my story. I'm thankful for poetry for doing that, but I know people who love poetry for poetry, for its importance in language, above all things, and I respect them. I don't feel like I'm as the poet that I would like to be, if I'm honest. I, I've spent my life searching for my family, and I, I wish I hadn't. And if I hadn't have been doing that, I would have been concentrating on the art of poetry much more. OK, I, I know that. No, okay? I, uh, yeah, Do you know what I mean? You know, I, I get exactly yeah. what like you're saying. It's like somebody in fashion yeah. getting like, a very be, good high yeah. street deal, which means they've got the money to do what yeah. they wanted yeah. to do to find their yeah. family. Yeah. And they know that they love fashion, but they couldn't go around down the couture yeah. route yeah, because, yeah. you know, X, Y, Z. Or, being very practical here, and yeah. you can tell where I'm fighting, <laughs> or... It's like the guy who gets to the top of the business because the wife's at home making the dinner, looking after the kids, making sure the car's sorted and that all the relatives are looked after because he doesn't have to think of that and then they get to the top of the business. That's, anyway, yeah, that's yes, another yeah, thing. But yeah. that's what you're saying. Had you been... Iris Murdoch sitting in her room, getting up each morning at whatever hour, yeah, and had the infrastructure and the education yeah, yeah, yeah. and all that safety around you, you, mate, would be... The next Poet Laureate. Yeah. Yes, yeah, that's just, your belief. It's, I put all of my energy, as soon as I got attention, ask people to look at my story so I can get documentary makers to follow my story to prove that what I'm telling you here, Mary, is not me being mad. And the reason I can say that is because I've got documentary evidence of it. I knew what I was doing right at the beginning. I love poetry, but I, I need to find my family, so I would use any attention I got as a poet to get people to find my family, knowing that by doing that, I was also losing the primary attention that the poetry needs. But there's a sort of symbiosis oh, wow. in that, though, isn't there? Oh, yeah. So it's this, isn't it? It's going together. So, you know, I know the poetry and the poet in me yeah. is driving to get to find my family, which is in turn feeding back into the poet in uh, me. But yeah. somehow the nucleus isn't enough. I need more yeah. of that. Oh, my God, I'm not expressing it very well. But no. I kind of get where you're coming from. But I suppose I wanted to ask you, because I mean, I love poetry and, and I have many books next to my bed. Do you know David White, the poet? I yes, mean, I love he, And yes. he gave this quote once that just said, Poetry is seeking language large enough. I really love that. Do you like that? You like that? Yes, I do. Yeah. Poetry yeah, yeah, is yeah. seeking yeah, yeah. language large enough. And I suppose. Part of me would think most poets are educated when you think of Sylvia Plath to such an yeah. extraordinary yeah, yeah, level, yeah. even, you know, Ted Hughes. Or, yeah. And you think, how, yeah, but how they're not did all you educated. get... No, they're not all. Of course they're not. Okay, you know, you know like, not, like all great musicians are not all no, classically trained. How know? did you get to there, in the way? Yes, I, I that's just, what I, would... I just, I knew at 12 years of age, which is after I'd left the foster parents and after I was in, when I was in care, that my only way of being able to understand what was happening to me was through imagery. Maybe it's connected to religion, you know, the yeah, yeah, religious yeah. imagery, yes. a lot of religious imagery and interpretation of that pre-12. But it's easy to do that. You don't know how you're born a poet. You can be a poet and not be born one, but I just knew from the age of 12, and I made a documentary where one of the staff at the children's home says, oh, I always remember you sat there writing away, and the teacher as well would tell me that I brought poems into the school and gave them to him and that he was moved by those poems. And I remember he used to give me critique, etc. told me about a poet called Linton Quasey Johnson, who I would later on go to meet with, and the Liverpool poets, who I would later go on to hang out with, you know, all over the world, reading poetry on stage with them. I knew at 12 that I wanted to be a poet, and I said it all the way through my school. I have the witnesses to that. Um, I believe you, Lim. No, but being believed... No, but the biggest lesson of my childhood... I still got stuff about this, but was that I'm not believed. My biggest lesson of my childhood was that if you love me and if I love you, you will disappear. And in fact, my loving you with you will be what makes you disappear. That's what my primary lesson of my childhood was. I lost everybody. I lost my brother, sister, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, granddad, grandma. So proving to people how important that was 
and how it affected me on every level, every day, was really important to me. And yet I couldn't, because all anybody would say is, why did you go in care? What, you know, what did you do wrong? Which is maybe <laughs> why. So I, I spent a lot maybe of time. Maybe why you haven't married. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's all connected, but... but Do you do that? Do you feel that you do that in relationships? That you oh, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Of course I do. And I, I try to work through that. And, uh, yeah, I didn't want to mm. close down an answer earlier mm. on when we were speaking about why I don't have children, because I know it's, it's connected to that. But, you know, proving stuff has been very important. Document Family's a set of disputed memories between one group of people over a lifetime, and I didn't have anybody to dispute the memory of me. And so, you know, writing poetry was a way of having a flag in the mountainside. This happened now, I promise you. But then the documentaries that I've made were ways of saying, no, this really did happen. And then when I took the government to court, when I got my files, it was a way of saying, legally, this is what happened to me and I'm going to prove it. And I did. The point is, about misfits, is that there is one child, because I'm all about saying to people, look, we've, we're all got misfit in us, etc. But maybe there is something in us that there's one child in the family whose eyes open in the morning and they wake up and they're like, I need to ask a question and I need an answer. And I'd like it now. I don't bring any side to this. I just like an answer. And when they don't get an answer, they said, I have to go further to get this answer then, don't I? Because I'm not getting it here. Very and they get the spade yeah. and they yeah. dig and they dig. And everybody around them say, why are you digging? There's no need to dig. Put the spade down. Go do something else. Be this, be that. Why? Why are you doing this? And for some reason, that one child is like, I don't know why, but the more you're saying this, the more I'm going to dig. And maybe if you're not here, I'm going to dig anyway. But I'm digging, OK? And that's what I did. I did it in a different way. And, and I agree with that. There's, I was one of five kids and I, and I would hear my parents rowing, you know, like, you know, not yeah. much, that terrible. And I'd be so frightened. But I actually thought by me being in there and being there and understanding it, I could make this change and sort it. And my siblings go, oh, go back to bed, Mary, just shut up, will you? And I go, no, 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 I've got to go. I'm going to go and see. And my parents would send me back up and then I'd come back down again. I'd sit on the stairs and I yeah. felt that I could make a difference. I needed to know, I needed to understand what was going on, whereas my siblings didn't. And I couldn't stop until I felt that all was OK. Yeah, I, I totally get that. When people talk about you, and I can feel it, you're always described with such warmth, and your poetry is just so full of it too. And actually, interesting, I've just thought about this when I said, oh, you didn't have an O-level. Some of the greatest poetry is written by the songwriters as well. Oh, they? my you know? word, and like, yeah. They don't come from, you know... Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I absolutely. Mean, Paul McCartney didn't do a, any music school. Uh, my favourite's Van Morrison. Yeah, I mean, come what, like, on. Come on. If you and how does he have that turn of phrase in his voice oh. and that musicality of himself, yeah. and, and no, no, not just the lyrics, but... But, you know, yeah. Come on, I read this one from you and I love it. My Name Is Why contains some of the poetry that stood out. And I, oh, yeah. I love this. I will build an embassy in your heart over time. There's a plot of land inside me. Build one in mine. It's just, just so gorgeous. Oh, gosh, yeah, it's really got to me as well now. I mean, because that strikes to everything we're talking about, yeah. actually, about relationships and, and what yeah. have you. That's beautiful. I will build an embassy in your heart over time. There's a plot of land inside me. Build one in mine. Mm, yeah, I used to do a, a tweet every morning. Some of them would work, some of them wouldn't work. But I do think writers put themselves out for ridicule. You know, and I think that's why I think writers are really strong. You know what I mean? Because they, they will say there's always the chance that it's crass and it's not going to work. And I think, good on you, writers. I think this is about fashion as well, actually. You know, a student said to me once, why not dress your best all the time? And it was very, you know, it was a very student-y thing to say, but I thought, God, what a brilliant thought. We were talking about that yesterday, you know, when we were kids, like, that's for best. Well, best never bloody came. Yeah. Best, best. It's the same. <laughs> what do you mean best? What is yeah. best? And the ability to the dress, church. you know, to wear your, wear your things, you know. Mm. Just, I'm uh, just going to go yeah. on to what you've achieved because, I, I mean, it's just, it's 
big. It's, it's big. A bit nuts, isn't it? Chancellor of Manchester University. University. Just <laughs> how? What does that actually mean? I mean, it's, it's mean? A... Well, you're the ceremonial head of the university. That's huge. It is huge, yeah. And you chair the board of the university. Actually, I did that for seven years. Chairing is a chairing job, in truth. Did you ever feel like, oh, God, I don't know how to do this? Because I've felt that in times. Yes, I have. I have felt like that. And I've also felt like, am I supposed to be here doing this? I'm on a few trustees ships and what have you, but chairing the university that has a turnover of two billion a year. And it's a big, (laughs) big, proper uni. We're not just talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, is that it's such a great university, has these incredible people who run it. And chairing is a case of an administrative role, actually. Yeah, but you still got to know how to do that. That's still yeah, in it. Yeah, and I do know how to do it now. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, we could go on all day. Look <laughs> at us. Oh, my God, we've been in here hours. Lem, I'm going to ask you this before you go. Yeah. What gives you hope? Oh, it's going to sound maybe cross this, but I am inspired by... The next generation that are coming up and the questions that they're asking, the way that they are and the way they make me feel, you know, when people say, oh, you know, especially in the cities, they say, I never saw so many trans people on the streets as there are now. I think to myself, yeah, because they had to hide, man. They had to not come out at all. It's fantastic. I mean, you know, the reason that you can see those people on the streets now is because that they... They are giving themselves permission to come out, but before we didn't give them permission to walk on the street, they'd be beaten up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But it's a different age. I feel like, I feel lucky to be in this... So do I. ...in this time. So do um, I. And I, I am going to make mistakes and uh, I can lean into them. Yeah. Lem Sisse, you are just wonderful. I just had had the loveliest time. Me too. I don't even know if I've used the word loveliest in it. I just think that's been <laughs> something in me has just, you know, gone into another space. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you, Mary, for it. Come on. It's <laughs> <laughs> been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening, and I leave you with this. Don't you dare, having listened to this podcast and be inspired, think that the care of this world is always someone else's job. It's not. It's yours. Every one of your actions counts. Make it happen.